This morning we are in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time. Father, we are so thankful this morning for the great privilege we have of gathering here and lifting our voices to sing your praises. Father, we pray that now we would worship you as the word of God is preached. Father, we pray that your word would have its intended effect in all of our hearts and lives. Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, manifest your presence through the word of God this morning. We long to encounter your presence. We know that you are everywhere present, but we pray that as the word of God is preached and Jesus Christ is magnified, that you would, be, that you would manifest your presence in our midst. Lord, encourage us this morning, challenge us, convict us. We pray that we would all think very, very carefully about how to apply the words of this wonderful psalm to our lives this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. When you and I see something amazing or experience something amazing, we often want to tell our friends about it, don't we? For instance, you may say to your friends, have you had the new raspberry chipotle chicken burrito at Costa Vida? Costa Vida? It's amazing. True fact, by the way, it is amazing. Or you may say, Have you read the new John Grisham novel? That ending will blow your mind. Or you may say, did you watch the Seahawks last week? Russell Wilson was amazing. 400 yards, five touchdowns. I have to tell somebody about it. Yesterday, I was with my family in Walla Walla, Washington for a tennis tournament from my son Peter. And there was a guy there, older than Peter, in the 18 uh, category. And he was 6'5" and he was serving probably 130 miles an hour. So I had to tell someone about it. I began talking to this complete stranger. Did you see how huge that serve was? Something inside of us longs to praise things that we think are amazing. Isn't that why videos go viral on YouTube? We want to share our passion for great things, funny things, amazing things with our friends. Well, King David was no different. 
King David looked up at the night sky and he could not keep his mouth closed. He had to say something. He had to sing something because he was so overwhelmed and amazed by what he saw in the heavens. And that brings us this morning to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 begins and ends with this wonderful statement of praise to God. Psalm 8.1 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then the psalm ends the same way, 8.9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now when you see two nearly identical verses like this that bookend a psalm, the psalmist is using a literary device called an inclusio. An inclusio tells us that everything in between those two identical verses um, are expanding the idea of those two identical verses. So this whole psalm really is one long song of praise to Yahweh for creating the universe. There are no commands in this psalm. This is the only psalm in the Bible addressed entirely to God. David can't keep his mouth closed. He has to say something. He has to sing something because he's overwhelmed and amazed by the power of God in creation. Now, David highlights two specific aspects of creation in Psalm 8. David praises God for creating the stars, and then David praises God for creating humanity. Those are the two points this morning. Again, David praises God for creating the stars, and then David praises God for creating humanity. And I hope and pray that as we look at this psalm, you too will be moved to lift your voice and sing God's praise. So first, David praises God for creating the stars. Look with me at verse one again. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now verse one literally reads, O Yahweh, our King. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our King, how majestic or glorious or excellent is your name slash character or power. You have set your glory above the heavens, that is, in the stars. Then verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David is saying, if God's enemies don't praise him, little kids will. God is often, throughout Scripture, confounding the wise and the scholar with weak and foolish things, like little children. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Let me summarize verses one to three. As many of you know, David grew up a shepherd. I'm sure David thought back to all the times that he was out in the fields at night by himself, probably lonely and cold, with the sheep on his back looking up at the night sky. And just imagine, there was zero light pollution. The human eye can see anywhere from five to 10,000 stars at night, based on who you talk to. So David's thinking back 
to those times when he looked up at the night sky and he saw the stars and he was overwhelmed and amazed and as a result, he was moved to praise God. I'm sure many of you have been up in Stevens County or up at Priest Lake, maybe up at Ponderé Lake in the summertime with no light pollution and you've looked up at the night sky and you thought, wow, I am so small and God is so massive. Now, if David thought that before the advent of modern astronomy, how much more should you and I lift our voices with loud songs of praise because of the stars? Well, consider for a moment our star, the sun. Not to brag or anything, but our star is pretty amazing. The sun is 93 million miles away, yet we must wear sunglasses, hats, and sunscreen to protect ourselves from its incredibly destructive power. One scholar notes, to produce the observed energy emitted from the sun's solar surface, the equivalent of 100 billion hydrogen bombs must explode every second in its unfathomably hot, dense core. So a few weeks ago, it was really hot in Spokane. We set records for temperatures. But the sun's core burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. A pinhead, heated to the temperature of the center of the sun, would emit enough heat to kill someone within a thousand miles of it. So imagine a little pinhead, a little piece of metal in Phoenix, Arizona, as hot as the center of the sun. It would kill you if you were in Spokane, Washington. That's how hot it would be. 99.9% of all matter in our solar system is contained within the sun. Show the next image, please, Nate. 1.3 million Earths could fit inside the sun. Now, consider next the size of the stars. Now, I have a video here. The quality is really poor, unfortunately, but hopefully you'll get the idea uh, of what's going on in this video. Um, there it is. Okay, there's planet Earth. Keep that in mind. Planet Earth is right there. Getting smaller and smaller. These are massive stars. Another massive star. Getting bigger. That's the sun. There's planet Earth. Sorry you couldn't read those names, but those were really, really big stars. The biggest and brightest known star in our galaxy is Eta Carinae. It's more than 100 times larger than the sun. 
If the sun and Etikarene were the same distance from the earth, Etikarene would be four million times brighter than the sun. Now, it feels kind of bright here this morning, doesn't it, with these new lights? It's a little bright. But imagine this star being four million times brighter than our sun. We would all die. There's a star named IRS 65. It probably wants your money. Some of you a little slow up the uptake there. If the sun were 18 inches tall, this star would be as tall as Mount Everest. If our galaxy, the Milky Way, were the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of a quarter. Now consider the number of stars for a moment. Astronomers estimate that the Milky Way has anywhere between 100 billion to 400 billion stars. That's just in our little galaxy, the Milky Way. Low end, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. Well, how many galaxies are there? Low end, very low end, 100 billion galaxies. High end now on galaxies is 2 trillion galaxies. And again, most galaxies have over 100 billion stars in them. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David looked up at the night sky, and he was moved to sing God's praises, to worship Yahweh, the creator of all things. And we know from the rest of the Bible that God merely spoke. Let there be light. And the entire universe came into existence out of nothing. Hundreds of billions of galaxies came from nowhere, out of nothing, by the sheer power of God. And right now, God is literally everywhere present across his vast cosmos, which means he's five trillion year, light years that way, and he's five trillion light years that way, and he's five trillion light years that way, and five trillion light years that way. Furthermore, God knows exactly what's going to happen 333 years and 33 minutes and 33 seconds from now in every square inch of his creation. We are talking about a God of unspeakable, unimaginable, raw power. This is the God that you and I have the privilege of worshiping. Now, if God is that powerful, and he is, do you think that God has the power to help save your marriage, (laughs) to help rescue you from addiction, to help you be a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better mother, to help you put to death crippling anxiety? If God has this much power, do you think he can return someday and make all things right and all things new? 
yes and yes. There is nothing that is too hard for God. Our problems seem massive sometimes. But we're talking about a God who has unlimited power. Theologians say that he is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is all-wise, and he is all-good, and he's loving. Yes, God has the power to help you with your problems, no matter how large they seem to be. God is worthy of all praise because he created the stars, but there's more. Second, God is worthy of all praise because he created humans. So first, David praises God for creating the stars. Now David praises God for creating humans. More specifically, David praises God for creating humanity with care. He cares about his creation. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? Such a great question. What is man? You are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. And that phrase, son of man, was a Hebrew phrase that often referred to mankind in general, especially in contrast to God. David is saying, Yahweh, why in the world do you care about us? That's a good question. In light of the vastness of the cosmos. Let me show you a picture I showed several years ago. This is called the pale blue dot. What do you think that is right there? That's planet Earth. Leave it up for a moment. This picture was taken on February 14, 1990 by the Voyager uh, 1 space probe from a distance of about 3.7 billion miles away. No one had ever seen the planet Earth from this perspective before, and this view rocked the scientific community. Reflecting on this pale blue dot, Carl Sagan very famously wrote these words. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Now Sagan is right. 
we seem incredibly small, insignificant, and fragile in light of the vast cosmos. But Sagan is wrong. We do matter to God. Amazingly, God cares for us. Even though we are incredibly small, microscopic specks of dust in a vast universe, even though our lives are incredibly short, even though you are one of 110 billion people who have lived on planet Earth, even though your great-grandkids probably won't even know your name, do you know your great-grandparents' names? Many of us don't. Even though we seem incredibly insignificant, the maker of the universe cares deeply about each one of you. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, hundreds of billions of galaxies, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's asking a rhetorical question there. He's saying, it blows my mind, Yahweh, that you would care for me. God cares for each one of you. Well, how much does God care for each one of us? He not only knows every single detail of your lives, he has every hair on your head counted, he loves you so much that he sent his only son to become a cosmic speck of dust in the grand scheme of things, to become a human and suffer and die in your place on the cross, bearing the righteous wrath that you and I deserve so that you and I, cosmic dust, could have relationship with the maker of all things. I hope like David, that moves you to praise. And make no mistake, everyone who does not bow the knee to Yahweh will be punished because he is worthy of praise his power and his glory and his might demand praise from his creation. David praises God for creating humanity with care. In addition, David praises God for creating humanity with dignity. Look at verses three and five with me. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, i.e. the angels. You've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 4 is the swing verse in this psalm, and it raises a very important existential slash ontological question. What in the world is man? In other words, what is the human race? What are, who are human beings? 
Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask an, an advocate of critical theory, they'll tell you that all humans are divided into one of two categories, the oppressor and the oppressed. By the way, this comes straight out of Marxism, which wreaked havoc on the 20th century. The hedonist believes that human beings are merely machines seeking pleasure. The pantheist believes that humans are indistinguishable from the rest of the cosmos. Muslims believe that humans are meant to have relationship with God. They're meant to submit to God in a very fatalistic sort of way. Increasingly, our culture thinks in secular or naturalistic terms. The naturalist believes that human beings have evolved from the swamp gas, and if that's true, they have no worth, no value, no purpose, and no meaning. If you think I'm caricaturing, listen to William Provine, who's an esteemed, he's dead now, he was an esteemed Darwinian professor of biology from Cornell University. He said this, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directing forces of any kind. There's no life after death. There is no ultimate foundations for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Dr. Rodney Brooks, a professor at MIT, wrote something very similar. He says this, a human being is nothing but a machine or a bag, a big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. Increasingly, this is the worldview of many people around us. You and I are nothing more than machines made out of meat that evolved from the swamp gas. Therefore, you have no dignity, no worth, and no value, and there's no basis whatsoever for ethics or morality. Now, thankfully, most Darwinianists don't live this way. They live inconsistently with their worldview, which means their worldview is broken. If they live this way, society would disintegrate in a matter of hours. So what is a human being? Who are we existentially? According to Psalm 8, human beings are incredibly significant because we are made in God's image. Again, Psalm 8, 3 to 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Then he answers the question. Yet you have made him, humankind, a little lower than the, than the heavenly beings, lower than the angels in one sense, and crowned him with glory and honor. Now we know that Psalm 8 parallels Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 makes it very, very clear that to be crowned with glory and honor, the glory and honor of God means that you and I are made in God's image. Yes, you and I, these teeny, tiny, infinitesimally small specks of cosmic dust are made in the image of God. Which means that you and I have worth and value and dignity. According to the Bible, 
When you and I want to know what God is most like, we are not told to look to the stars, the Milky Way, Mount Everest, or a sunset. We are told to look at our fellow human beings. If you want to know what God is like, look at those made in God's image. Every human being, no matter how fallen or broken or injured, is made in the image of God, which provides the only sure foundation for any notion of human rights and dignity. Because we're all made in God's image, abortion is wrong. Euthanasia is wrong. Bulimia is wrong. Of all people, Christians should be the most concerned about the poor, the needy, the outcasts, the widow, the disabled, and the decrepit. This doctrine gives value to all human beings. So let me ask you a question. How are we doing when it comes to thinking about our neighbors and friends? Are we treating them as if they are in the image of God? When you snub your wife or your husband or your child or your coworker, you are snubbing someone made in God's image. When you complain about someone, when you criticize someone, you're complaining about and you're criticizing someone made in God's image and likeness. Christians must have a positive self-image. I didn't say positive self-esteem. I said positive self-image. Not because we're so amazing and talented and handsome and athletic. No. We should have a positive self-image because we're made in God's image, which gives all of us worth and value and dignity. If there is no God, it is survival of the fittest. On the other hand, if there's a Christian God and we're made in his image, we must care for the poor, the weak, and the needy. David praises God for creating humanity with care. David praises God for creating humanity with dignity. Furthermore, David praises God for creating humanity with a task with a task. Look at verses five to eight. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. What a privilege. You have put all things under his feet. Under whose feet? Humanity's feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. According to verse 6, God has given the human race dominion over creation. And again, this closely parallels Genesis chapter 1. But we're also told that the human race is made in God's image. Genesis 1.28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of kids for the glory of God. GCF is obeying this verse. Amen. 
be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. Because we're made in God's image, we have the great privilege of ruling over in a benevolent way all of creation as vice regents of King Jesus. This means that we must take care of the environment. Now, I am not a tree hugger or a pantheist. I believe in hunting and fishing and using trees to make houses. At the same time, of all people, Christians should be the ones who have the greatest concern for the environment. It belongs to God, and God has given us the privilege of ruling over for his glory. We must take care of animals. I was talking to someone last week, and for many years, his job was turning crystals into computer chips. He was obeying the cultural mandate, taking the good stuff of earth and redeeming it for the glory of God. Turning sand into glass, turning trees into homes, violins, pianos, and picture frames, harnessing chemicals and minerals into life-saving drugs, splitting atoms to create safe and efficient forms of nuclear power. God has called us to these wonderful tasks. He's called us to rule and subdue all of creation. Take the good stuff of his creation and make things for the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. What a privilege. We have purpose. We have value. We're made in God's image, which means that we are called to harness every square inch of his magnificent creation for his glory. That's our task. What a privilege. As David contemplates the night sky, David is moved to praise God. He can't keep his mouth closed. He begins to sing. David praises God for creating the stars, and David praises God for creating humanity. Now, as I already mentioned, the human race was given an incredible task. Back in the garden, God told Adam and Eve to rule and subdue creation. But we have failed miserably. We pollute and exploit God's creation. We sin against human beings made in God's image, part of his creation. Instead of splitting atoms to provide life-saving energy, we split atoms to create bombs that destroy cities. The human race has failed miserably in fulfilling God's plan for humanity. We are not very good at being human. We need a savior, a perfect human, which brings us to Hebrews chapter two. In Hebrews two, the author of Hebrews quotes directly from Psalm eight. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9 says this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and then he quotes now directly from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. 
putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The author of Hebrews is saying clearly, (laughs) creation is not fully subjected to humanity. There's all kinds of problems as we look around at creation. But God had a plan to fix this. God sent his only son to be the last Adam, the perfect human, the head of a new race, to subjugate all of creation for God's glory on our behalf. How does Jesus do this? How does he bring creation under his control? By dealing with sin. Verse 9 of Hebrews 2. But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus suffered and died on the cross to destroy the power of sin. It's sin that ruins God's creation. Sin's like a cancer that spreads everywhere throughout God's glorious and beautiful work of creation. Jesus came and suffered and died on the cross in the place of sinners, breaking the power of sin in us. And someday, because he died on the cross, he will break the power of sin over all of creation when he returns in glory. Now he rules and reigns over all things. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says this, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Whose feet? Jesus' feet. The perfect God-man, the perfect human being who came to subjugate all of creation where we failed miserably. And he does it in weakness by suffering and dying on the cross. And now as the divine God-man, He rules over creation. Yes, in one sense, the divine Christ has always ruled over creation. He was the agent of creation. But the divine Christ took on flesh, fully God and fully man. And when Jesus came to earth in a human body and suffered and died on the cross for our sins, he fulfilled Genesis 1. And Hebrews 8, subduing all of creation by destroying the power of sin. And someday, every single stain of sin will be removed from all of creation because Jesus came to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. Someday, if you're a Christian, you will rule with Jesus Christ over all of creation in a renewed, glorified universe and glorified resurrection bodies, fulfilling Genesis 1 and Hebrews 8 perfectly alongside of Jesus, the God-man. And in that place, there'll be no more malaria, no more atomic bombs, no more cancer, no more polio, No more COVID-19. 
We will live with Christ in the eternal promised land because the creator became the redeemer. Let's pray together.